Welcome to the sermon podcast of Paley Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Becca Bruner. I think as most of you probably know, I've I've told you before about me that I am a runner, um, though I would call myself a very lazy runner um, in that I I, I go several times a week, but I'm like three miles, we're done. Like I don't stretch and I know I'm getting old, so I should. Uh, I don't do weights. I don't do really anything else. I run my three miles, we're done. Uh, But I am proud to say that several years ago, I did train for and run one half marathon. And I felt very proud of myself for that. For 13.1 miles, I ran. And when I got to the end of it, I thought, how in the world does anyone do this twice? Like a full marathon. Like I was done, 13. I was like, thank you, we're done. We don't need to do that again. But I did it. And I did it by training. At the time, we lived in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, So I did my training runs there. I'd go out early Saturday mornings and go out and run for whatever amount of miles uh, I needed to that day. And then the the half marathon itself, the plan was a group of girlfriends and I, we met up together to go to run it together. And we chose uh, some, I don't remember what town, but it was in central Florida. And the thing to know about central Florida and Princeton, really, uh, is they're very, very flat. Like Princeton has a, a couple little hills here and there, but like central Florida, I'm pretty sure they have to put like trees and park benches on their topographic maps because there's just like nothing. It is flat, flat, flat. And on flat surfaces, I feel pretty fit. Like I feel like I can run quite a distance, I'm, I'm, that I'm a good and solid and strong runner. And then I go home to visit my mom and my sister and my family in Portland, Oregon. Uh, has anyone, people here been to Portland, Oregon or the Northwest Territory a little bit? Not flat there. <laughs> Not flat at all there. Like we say we have mountains here in Pennsylvania. I've been taking my daughter skiing at Spring Mountain. I'm sorry. I love Pennsylvania. That ain't a mountain, right? Like I go home and just like outside my mom and sister's house outside their door are like these huge hills. So I like put on my running stuff. I think I'm really fit. I go out to go running and I'm like, like one hill just knocks me out because I'm not used to them. Like whole different ball game running on flat surface versus running on hills. The strength I thought I had, nothing. Well, this month we are finishing up today a series that we have been doing on Jesus' prayers. We spent the first two weeks early in January talking about the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and us to pray that that we now now call the Lord's Prayer. Last week, Jonathan talked about the the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us in the the night before he was arrested. And today we're going to look at a prayer that Jesus prayed for himself moments before he would face death on the cross. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed as he faced the biggest hill of his life. Because we all know, right, not all hills are physical. Not not all of them are the physical hills of Oregon. We all face all kinds of hills, emotional, relational, psychological, spiritual. 
And the hills that we face are just as challenging, just as tiring, just as difficult and painful as all the hills of Oregon combined, sometimes even more so. So today we're going to learn from Jesus' prayer. Today we're going to learn from Jesus how we can develop a kind of uphill faith, a faith that can support us and sustain us when the inclines of life just seem overwhelming. So we're going to look at this story. We're going to look at this prayer together. If you want to read along in your own Bible, that's found in Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. We're told that Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and and stay awake with me. You know, it's interesting. Here we, we find Jesus in this moment in his life in a place of intense need. You don't see that a lot in the Gospels. We, we get a lot of snapshots of teacher Jesus. We can read countless stories of, of Savior Jesus, but here we see human Jesus. We see a Jesus who's scared. We see a Jesus who is overwhelmed by grief and anxiety. We see a Jesus who is facing a hill he didn't want to have to climb. A Jesus who is looking at a set of circumstances that he did not feel ready or strong enough for. Many of us know what that's like. We too have faced hills that we don't feel ready for, hills that we would rather not have to climb. And I know that some of us are facing those hills today. Some of us are facing hills related to our job situations. You know, some of you have been desperately just searching for a job, any job, and you just can't seem to find it. And yet, though no paychecks are coming in, the bills are. Or, or, Or we are in a job, but it's one that we find deeply dissatisfying, deeply discouraging, and we would quit it in a second if it weren't for those, you know, pesky bill things. Some of us are facing relational hills. Your relationship with your spouse or your parents or your kids or your best friend, whoever it is, it's just causing you all sorts of pain. No matter how hard you try, you can't seem to to come together. You keep hurting each other. And and you know that, you know, you can see it. Forgiveness and reconciliation and reconnection, they're, they're there, but they're like way on the top of that hill. And you're just not sure you have the strength to climb. Some of us are facing hills of bad health, either our own or or somebody that we love. You've received a diagnosis that that you're not sure how or if you're going to make it through. You know, we all know, we hear the statistic, one in five Americans struggle with some form of mental illness. So that means in a, a congregation our size, on any given day, 75 to 100 of us just getting out of bed in the morning feels like trying to climb Mount Everest. And then there's COVID. You know, I know this is a Presbyterian church and also we we stay quiet a little bit, but I know I can get an amen for this. We are all done with COVID, are we not? We are all done with COVID, but 
it seems that COVID is not done with us. So up the hill we walk. Whatever hill you face. Have you ever wondered if God knows? Have you ever wondered if God cares? If God understands the pain and the fear and the sorrow and the struggle of your hill? Just look at Jesus at his hill. He knows your pain so well. He feels every one of your fears. And in the midst of it, Jesus found a way to walk. He discovered a way through the sorrow and came to a place of strength. And I believe that if we follow in his path, we will find that strength as well. So let's read on in Jesus' story. Matthew tells us that going a little further, Jesus threw himself on the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's really interesting to me. Just in these ten short verses, something changes in Jesus. See, at the beginning, as he approaches the garden, we hear Jesus saying that he is deeply grieved even to death. We see him falling on his face in prayer. When you read Luke's account of the story, we're told that, that Jesus was in such deep distress that as he prayed, he sweat actual blood. We know from modern medical science that this is something that can happen when somebody is in deep duress, when really overwhelmed by anxiety, it, it can happen that physically the, the blood vessels pop and, and you actually sweat blood. This, this happens. It was happening to Jesus. He was overwhelmed. But then something changes. Returning to his disciples, Jesus says, get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's a very different message than I am deeply grieved, even unto death. So what, what was intense sorrow has changed into this incredible strength? How is that? What happened? What, what changed? How did Jesus find the strength to walk up this hill that moments earlier had caused him such intense sorrow? Well, the answer is found in Jesus' prayer. In these few short verses, as we listen Jesus prayed both a prayer, of or a prayer of struggle and a prayer of surrender. 
And as he prayed these two distinct yet interconnected prayers, Jesus was able to move from sorrow to strength. And my hope is, is as we learn this prayer from Jesus, as we pray this prayer with Jesus, we will find that same strength as well. So let's take a closer look. First, Jesus prayed this prayer of struggle. Three times he pleaded, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, it seems to me, for a lot of us, uh, we think that when we think about how we ought to pray, what, what often comes to mind for us is that, that we ought to be polite. You know, we ought to be reverent. We ought to be well-mannered. I mean, we're praying to the, the God of the universe, right? But probably best not to tick him off. But Jesus' prayer here is, is it's not a polite prayer. It's, it's, it's not a reverent prayer even. This is a, a longing, begging, do something, change something. I don't want this. I don't like this kind of prayer. Jesus sees no problem with praying an impolite prayer. Jesus takes no issue with praying this prayer of struggle. And you need to know he's not the first one. We have this wonderful treasure right in the center of our Bibles. It's called the book of Psalms. And it's ironic because while the Hebrew word Psalms means praises, the most common psalm, the most common prayer is actually the psalm of lament, of complaint. These are prayers of struggle. I'm going to read to you just a few lines from Psalm 44, a very famous psalm of lament, and I'm going to read it from a more contemporized version of Scripture, just so you you really hear it. Here's what this psalmist prays, talking, again, to the God of the universe, but now you have walked off and left us. You've disgraced us, and you won't fight for us. You sold your people at a discount, and you made nothing on the sale. Get up, God. Are you going to sleep all day? Wake up. Don't you care what happens to us? Here we are, flat on our faces in the dirt, held down with a boot on our necks. Get up and come to our rescue if you love us so much. Help us. That sound like a polite prayer? You know, it's interesting, Old Testament scholars have written that these psalms, these struggle prayers, were actually totally unique compared to all the other religions at their time. You know, people in other cultures, none of them prayed to their gods in these ways. And in these other religions, they would pray, they would make requests of their gods, they would offer worship to their gods, but none of them vented their pain to their gods the way that the people of Israel did. And for good reason. For in all the ancient world, it was only Israel who believed that the God who created the heavens and the earth actually cares for his people when they are in pain. And Jesus knew this about God. Jesus knew that he could pray this prayer of struggle to God because he knew that God heard. He knew that God cared. Jesus knew. We're the ones who could learn that a little bit. We need to know that it is okay to pray this prayer of struggle, to vent, to yell, yes, even to scream at God when we need to. How many of you saw this story come up in the news in the last couple of weeks, these moms in Boston? Anybody see, read about this? 
thought this was really interesting. I'll, I'll share a little bit of their story as written by one journal, journalist from The Atlantic. He writes, last Thursday, a group of 20 mothers in Boston met up outside in the local high school. Their goal wasn't to socialize, drink wine, or even share COVID-related tips. They were there for one reason and one reason only, to stand in a circle, socially distanced, of course, and scream. When mothers feel that there is no more appealing way to spend an evening than to yell into the frigid January darkness, something is very, very wrong. Parents in the United States are living through a universally terrible moment. For two years, we've been spending each and every day navigating an ever-changing virus that is threatening not only our well-being, but our livelihoods. The situation has reached a fever pitch during this wave when we're expected to function normally even though nothing is normal and none of the puzzle pieces in front of us fit together. Parents were defeated long before Omicron. Now we've reached a stage of pandemic where finding the right words to describe our lot is simply an exercise in absurdity. We are broken. We have nothing left in us but screams of anger and pain. And it's not just the parents. You know, those moms on the football field that night, they said they thought they were just getting together to scream. I say they were getting together to pray. And I think we could do well to learn from them. Yes, there are times for polite, polished, reverent prayers. But there are times, and I would say we are collectively all living through one of those times in which our souls desperately need this prayer of struggle. We need to be honest with God. We're invited to be mad at God. We are given every permission to question, to scream, to struggle with God. Now, I imagine there's some people still kind of on the fence about this. Like, you hear it, you're hearing me, like, I hear you, we can yell at God, we can scream, we're fine, good. But that just, I'm a little uncomfortable, that's not something I've ever done, that's not something I could see myself do, like, that's just not something that good Christians do, right? So if that's you, I just, just consider this for a moment. What if your willingness to be totally honest with God, to hold nothing back from God, what if that's actually the greatest gift you could give to God? We can all agree, right, that, that God wants to be in relationship with us, right? We say that all the time around here. We see it all over the Bible. God wants to be in real relationship with us. God wants to love us and for us to love God back. Well, so let's think about it in terms of human relationships here for a second. When you're just getting to, getting to know somebody, when somebody you're just kind of at an acquaintance level with somebody, you're polite, right? You, you don't say everything you're thinking and feeling or emote every feeling you have to that person. That would not be particularly appropriate. That relationship probably wouldn't last very long, right? It's not until you go deeper that you get more real. It's just a generally true and healthy uh, reality that our level of vulnerability with any person ought to be commensurate with our commitment to them, right? So take me and Dave, for instance. I remember when we were in the midst of dating, you know, maybe like a year in, it hadn't been that long, but we were, we were in it, we were dating. I remember like 
bragging to a friend, being like, you know, it's so great. Like, <sighs> we just, like, don't ever fight, you know? I mean, well, yeah, we disagree sometimes, but, like, we just have, like, these deep conversations. It's, it's, it's so great. <laughs> We've been married 15 years now. Do you think we just have, like, deep conversations? No, of course not. Like, when we step on each other's toes or we have a, a disagreement of some sort, we let each other know how we're feeling about it. We don't hold much back. We are 100% committed to each other, and so we know that we can be 100% honest with each other. Now, don't hear me say that, that, you know, verbal abuse equals healthy relationship. That's not what we're doing. We still seek very much to be kind and respectful and loving to one another. We benefit greatly from working on our communication and counseling. Like, we're not like, you know, tearing each other down. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that our willingness to be wholly honest and vulnerable with each other in our marriage is one of the greatest gifts we can give to each other. Our vulnerability is commensurate to our commitment. We're honest with each other because we deeply love and trust one another. So if that's true in my human relationship with my husband, how much more ought it be true in my relationship with God? So the, so the question we have to consider is, is my vulnerability with God commensurate with my commitment to him? Do I trust that I can be totally honest with God as a sign of how deeply I love him? That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. That's how Jesus himself prays, this prayer of struggle, which is ultimately what leads to the next part, which is the prayer of surrender. Now, before we get into this prayer of surrender, there's one really big pastoral caveat here. Because the word surrender for some people in certain situations can be problematic, particularly if you are in a situation of harm. Harm from another person or harm to yourself. And what I, if that is you, if you're living in that kind of situation, sometimes some people hear these words that Jesus says, you know, not my will, that your will be done. They think, well, that means I guess I have to surrender to the harm. That means, I guess, if Jesus allowed himself to be, you know, harmed by his betrayers, I, I have to give in to it as well. So let me say very, very clearly, if that is you, if you are in a situation of harm from another person or risk of harm to yourself, mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever it is, this invitation to surrender is not to give in to that harm. It's quite the opposite. Surrendering to Jesus in that kind of situation, I strongly believe, is to allow Jesus to give you the strength to walk away from that situation of harm. And if that's you or somebody that you love today, please know that you have pastors and you have staff here who want to walk with you in that journey of health and wholeness away from harm. But this prayer of struggle it does, it can lead us into a prayer of surrender quite naturally. Because if we love and trust God enough to let him have all of our stuff, then over time, that love and trust will lead us 
to be able to give him all of us. That's what happened for Jesus. Every time Jesus prayed, let this cup pass for me, every time he prayed that prayer of struggle, what followed was a prayer of surrender. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Your will be done. You know, I think particularly in American culture, that idea of surrender, we, we don't like it. We see surrender as an act of weakness. You know, it's something that weak people do. Like when we sur surrender, we're just saying, ugh, I give up. And we don't want to do that. You know, we're, we're people who are strong. We want to keep fighting. We want to keep struggling. We want to keep working for what we want. But surrender to God is hardly an act of weakness. Surrender to God is an acquisition of strength. When you surrender to something that is greater, to someone who is stronger than yourself, you take on their strength. Think about it this way. If ever you've taken a, a, a swimming class or you know, trained to be a lifeguard, any water safety class, you know that if you get into trouble in the water, your instinct is to keep fighting, right? Keep swimming, doing everything you can to, to keep your head above water. But what you're taught in those classes is that when a lifeguard comes to your rescue, that person's going to do everything they can to, to get you to stop, to get you to calm down, to stop flailing and flapping and just let him or her take over. It's totally counterintuitive. Everything in your body is telling you to keep fighting, but the only way you're going to get saved is to give in. The only way to be rescued is to surrender. And when you do, that lifeguard wraps his or her arms around you and you are no longer weak. You have taken on their strength. Friends, all of us today are facing a tremendous hill. And if you aren't today, you will be someday. So whatever your hill may be, as you face it, can you picture God standing there with you? Can you hear God whispering, come to me, surrender to me, let me rescue you, let me carry you in place of your weakness, take on my strength. The prayer of struggle and the prayer of surrender, they go hand in hand together. It was through praying both of these prayers that Jesus found the strength to walk up his hill. And it will be in praying both of these prayers that we will do the same. So I invite you to join me in a time of prayer together now. And as we do sometimes, I, I, I think it sometimes just is helpful to use our bodies to connect our minds and our hearts in prayer. And so if you're comfortable doing so, as we begin a time of just offering our own prayers of struggle, sometimes something that can help is just to ball your hands at a really, really tight fist. Just all of those feelings of it, whatever it is, anxiety or anger or frustration or worry or fear, just let those feelings be in your fists and hold them tight before God. And God, we're so grateful that we can come to you and say, we don't like this. We don't want this. We don't understand this. This isn't good. Whatever that situation is for you, if it's your job, if it's your health, if it's a, a relationship in your life, if it's a struggle, whatever the hill is that is before you, you can say it to God. Take it away. I don't want it. I don't like it. This isn't good. God can handle it. And God, as we continue almost 
two full years now into this struggle with this COVID-19 pandemic, we don't like it. It's hard. We don't like that the number of people who have died, we struggle with knowing what to do. We're afraid of ourselves or somebody else getting sick. We're frustrated that we don't know if we should or could or can go to work or send our kids to school or the daycares that get shut down or, or all the changes that just keep happening. God, we don't like it. And we want you to take it away. Whatever your prayer of struggle is, you can clench those fists and you can, though it's not necessarily a place where we might feel comfortable screaming our heads off, you can in your heart just let it out to God. And slowly as you feel ready, you can open your hands, release that fist and open your hands in a sign of surrender. To God. And with all the faith that you can muster, even at the tiniest bit, you can say, not my will, but your will be done. Even though I don't understand it, even though I don't like it, God, I am weak, and you are strong. So I surrender myself I surrender my circumstances. I surrender my job, my health, my relationships, my everything to you. God, I can't. You can. I think I'll let you. And in these times of struggle and surrender, we don't always have words to pray. And so we're grateful that you gave them. That you taught your disciples and you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.